Welcome to Chicago Audio Works, the podcast of the University of Chicago Press. We've just released the first book by writer Martin Pribe, titled The Wagon and Other Stories of the City. Pribe is a Chicago police officer, and the stories in the wagon are straight from the streets of Chicago. Life and death, criminals and victims, the grit and grind of the daily work of serving and protecting. Before he was a cop, Pribe was a bartender, a bouncer, a waiter, and a doorman. But he's also studied Latin and Walt Whitman. He's not a guy you can stuff in any pigeonhole. Martin is our guest today on Chicago Audio Works, reading from his book and answering a few questions put to him by promotions manager Lindsay Dawson. The Wagon. The dead seek the lowest places in Chicago. We find them in basements, laundry rooms, on floors next to couches, sticking out of two parked cars or shrubs next to the sidewalk. It is more than gravity that pulls them down, for in every dead body there is something more willfully downward, the lowest possible place, the head sunken into the chest and turned toward the floor. No matter the cause, an accident, a murder, or, as we cite on the hospitalization case report, natural causes, all bodies express this downwardness when we remove them from the cavern they have created merely by their presence, by their being. Some cops, like me, circle the periphery of the room before we encounter the body, making small talk with other cops guarding the scene slowly putting on our gloves, unnecessarily double-checking that our path is clear, anything to avoid the inevitable bending over the body and touching it, shaking it from this descendance it insists upon, and bringing it back into our living world, where it must be pronounced, photographed, identified, prodded, stripped, and categorized. Their resistance is powerful. The dead roll back to their original positions, stuck to the ground or the sheets on their bed. Their bodies unwilling to bend or sway into the bag, always pulling themselves back down, a force captured in the phrase, dead weight. I am glad to have a partner who forces the issue. He positions the large diesel wagon as close to the site as possible and wordlessly takes off his radio, rolls up his sleeves, and tucks in his shirt. He grabs the body bag and the gloves from the truck. He marches into the building or crime scene and holds open the bag with a leg or arm while the rest of his body is spent maneuvering it in. I shake myself free from my limbo and jump to assistance. I take my side and we work together until we can get the bag around the body and zip it up, communicating in short statements, his arm, watch his head, he's leaking there. My partner never wants to double bag the dead as I do, dreading the fluid drips that in the smallest amount will ruin a uniform. Instead he grabs the bag by the handles, lifts and heads back to the truck. I just want to get it over with, he says, after we get back into the front seats and begin driving to the morgue. He is polite, acknowledging and explaining the reasons for his taking control, the sign of a good partner. Oh yeah, sure, no problem, me too, I say, letting him know I am glad he did. The drive to the near west side can take 45 minutes and is a welcome break. 
We listen to calls on the radio, look at beautiful women, and keep our hands away from our faces, fearing that despite our best efforts, some small remnant of the dead is on us. We remind ourselves to use extra soap and some kind of fragrance when we wash our uniform that night. Even so, we sense the dead person in the back of the wagon as if we are keeping a secret, and we are. None of the people with whom we make eye contact as we drive have any idea there is a dead body in the back of our wagon. Even when we open the door to the wagon at the morgue, the dead seem to have burrowed deeper into it, and again they fight us when we slide them out onto the gurney, though it is much easier to handle them now that they are in a, that now that they are in a bag. The gurney fits the level of the wagon floor exactly. All we have to do is pull on the handles and the body slides out. At the morgue, the dead grow more sullen, insisting on, insisting on remaining in the same awkward positions they were in when they died, positions we would find impossible to endure. They will be faced upward in a well-lit room, the body bags suddenly and rudely opened with a razor, and any clothes or blankets cut away. My partner and I stand on the other side of a window watching the attendant process the dead. The unforgettable smell of the dead battling the smell of disinfectants spread liberally on the walls and floors. The morgue attendant weighs them, measures them, and removes their possessions and records them on the form, which we must sign. It means re-entering the room where there are often several other bodies waiting further processing. We use the morgue pen. Until we can scrub our hands, we will touch nothing that will come with us. The cavalier conversation among the morgue attendant, cops, and funeral directors can only intensify the ignominy of the dead. They will remain in this morgue under constant bright lights for a few days until the funeral home is ready to remove them. I often think what wisdom and honesty there is in the fact that we bury the dead. It strikes me as the single truthful element of the process. After the humiliation and rudeness of being disturbed from their dying place by the police, left in the constant fluorescent light of the morgue, what a relief to be placed deep into the dirt. Perhaps we are given after we sink the dead into the dirt for disturbing them at their place of death, for putting them through this legal and social process. Perhaps we are forgiven for disguising the dead to look like the living at the funeral and blathering about resurrection over them. No hard feelings, right? The dead do not lack the means of descending by themselves. To us their labor is slow and offensive, but in time, if left to their own devices, the dead can descend into any death place. Their secretions leak out onto the bed or the ground, and their flesh, their flesh hangs lower. It will sag from their bones. Their face will cave in and secretions flow from the anus or any other openings. Everything immediately downward so thoroughly deep into the place of their death that nothing can get the scent out. It is clear to me that the dead do not want us near them, for the stench they emit after four or five days is so offensive to every living thing, save the maggots who feed on them, that you will never forget it. What a travesty, I think, what false religion, to create, to cremate them and send their ashes billowing haphazardly about our world, strewn about our roads, stores, churches, cars, as if they haven't told us clearly in their death position where they want to go. For this, there can be no forgiveness. So, Marty, would you des describe this book as memoir or fiction or something in between? Um... I I would have to say it's something kind of in between. I I 
I felt like I wanted the elements of different kinds of writing to come through early on when I wrote the first story. I, I felt like they kind of did come through when I was writing it and I really liked that feeling and I wanted to, to keep it going. So I just hoped I was drawing on different kinds of writing when I wrote um, it. How, how much from the stories actually happened to you based on your experiences as a police officer and how, how much was imagined? Uh, it, it's very uh, real. It's uh, most most everything happened in one way or another. That's in the book. There's some stories that I I made up completely, and uh, I was a little leery that people would you know sort of pigeonhole me and say, "Well, you're telling lies here. You're telling the truth." And I just that was one reason why I wanted to call it elegies at first because I I wanted to get away from all the fact and fiction stuff. I don't know why. That's just the way I think. And uh, but, and any of the stories I think if you asked a cop the police stories they would tell you that's pretty representative. And any doorman story I think any doorman would tell you it's pretty representative. At least I hope they would. How have your colleagues in the Chicago Police Department reacted to the publication of the book? Uh, they've all been incredibly supportive. I was very nervous about it, but. Uh, Everybody's been very supportive. They've always asked me about it. I've had a lot of cop friends read it as I was writing it, and their uh, their opinion meant as much to me as anything. And uh, and so I haven't I haven't had any bad uh, bad feedback or everybody's just been great, supportive, and I'm really grateful for it. You know, I was very nervous about it. You've also worked, in addition to being a, a policeman, as a doorman, a bartender, and a taxi driver, and I think a few other jobs. Yes. Um, uh, how has your career in the service industry informed your view of humanity? Uh, well, I don't think I've ever been a taxi driver, but the other okay, ones I've sorry done. That's that. all right. Uh, how's it informed my view of humanity? Uh, well, you know, for a lot of time, for a long time, I was very ashamed all the jobs I did and that I never really had a career and uh, I look back on it now and I thought I think for example I couldn't imagine a better job for a writer than a doorman and I wished I had had that feeling earlier on in my years of being a doorman I always wanted to be a writer and I always did but I never had the guts to call myself a writer so I was just kind of this doorman who wandered around a lot and you know, I'm sure it caused my parents a great deal of disappointment and my friends who were all had professional jobs, but uh, I think it really opened up the city for me. Uh, being a doorman really, nothing prepared me for being a doorman and I was very bad at it at first. And it gives you a very immediate view of the city and it led into union work so I got to see politics in the city and um, so I think it I think in the end it really, in the way, opened up a view of the city that I like and I find compelling and I no longer disregard it like I did when I was a kid, when I was younger. In terms of specifically your work as a police officer, how has that informed your writing? Um, I think it's made me more conscious and it's forced me to think about things more intensely. Uh, when I was younger I read this interview, I used to read any interview I could about William Kennedy and he talked about, you know, when he was a journalist, that he thought he really knew what was going on in Albany and Puerto Rico because he was in Puerto Rico for a long time. And he felt, you know, he, he felt and he said a lot of journalists feel that they're at the center of things. 
and then when he became a novelist and he did a lot more exploring into like mobs and unions and the democratic machine that ran Albany, he started to realize that he really didn't know much at all. He was like on the outer edge of a, a orange, like he was on the, the, the rind of an orange. And he, he looks back at those days and he th said, well, I was very self-righteous and I really didn't know what was going on. And I thought I was a very worldly person. Uh, comparatively speaking, when I became a cop, but I realized I really didn't know much about the city at all. And I think the, the view of the city that being a cop gives you is is, um, is very valuable. I like it, even though it's t tough, but it's, it's a, I, th I think I know the city better and it's forced me to, to learn more about myself and whatnot. What about the city have you learned through being a cop that you wouldn't have working in another profession? Well, I mean, on different levels, I mean, I look at the city different politically, you know, I think I have a much uh, greater insight into how the city political structure works, uh, how the economy of it works with the service industry. Uh, I, have, I think I have a more better understanding of the various ethnicities that make up the, the city and how they think and how they interact, the Irish, uh, the Italians, the African Americans, the Latinos, uh, everything, you know. Uh, even the gay community, the you know, it's all part of your job, and it's all something you have to negotiate, and you have to figure out where, what people mean, and you have to. It's very immediate, and it's a daily thing you have to figure out. You know, I would put a smart Chicago cop, and I would not put myself in this category, but astute, you know, detective or a seasoned cop, as any of them, is the smartest, most insightful people I've ever met. And I've spent some time in academia. I wasn't a very good academic, but. I, I, they're always impressing me with their knowledge and their communication skills and how they know how things work. It's always a source of great uh, mystery to me. You know? Would The Wagon be a different book if it didn't take place in Chicago? How much I, does Chicago I, feature in the book? I couldn't imagine being a cop anywhere else but Chicago. I couldn't imagine uh, the book anything but Chicago. I, the, the book, Chicago was, in writing this book, was my biggest concerned, you know, this, what is the city? Mm -hmm. And it always is, and uh, I guess you'd call me regional in that respect, you know. I'm, I'm always a, obsessed with what the city is, you know. Even going back to my own family, you know, my parents had very different views of what the city was, you know, and which one was right, I don't know, you know. You talk in the book about um, your favorite writers, including Walt Whitman. Who are your literary influences? Uh, without question, the two biggest writers that have had the overwhelming influence on my life are Walt Whitman's Leaves of Grass, which when I first read it, I thought it was silly. And then about a year or two later, I, I read it again, and I, I felt like I'd found a place to live. I was so overwhelmed by how, what a great writing it was. And I always read everything about Whitman. I read all his biographies. and uh, To this day, I, I just think his poems are like this something that came from I don't know where, but I just think they're just a whole universe of poetry. And the same thing happened when I read the opening uh, sentence of William Kennedy's Ironweed. I, uh, I felt, one, just awestruck, and two, very jealous, because I thought I wanted to write like that. And uh, so that was the beginning of reading Kennedy's novels. And I, I think, and no one could convince me otherwise, that he's probably, you know, the great American writer of our generation. And I... I think it'll take a while for some people to uh, see his books in connection with his, like, Ironweed. Yeah, but
but I think all of his books are just pure masterpieces. I, I, I just so those two writers, but many others. You know, I, I liked uh, Hemingway or uh, Melville. All the writers from Melville, and you know, when I was younger, I read uh, uh, Thoreau and uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson, all that stuff. And uh, but those two writers stand out as by far the, the ones. That, to this day, I read them all. Have you met any other uh, employees at the Chicago Police Department who share your interest in Whitman and these writers? Uh, yeah, I've had, uh, you know, one of the things that kind of bothers you about being a police is, you know, people always treat cops as if they're blue, these blue-collar guys who, you know, are not very cultured. But, you know, I some of the best conversations I've ever had about literature uh, politics or anything ever in squad cars, and I've had many great uh, partners who... You know, I've learned a lot about literature from, and uh, I try and get into one of that one of the stories with a, a partner I had. She's on Midnight's now, but we used to have wonderful conversations about literature, and uh, that's when the job is just a joy. You know, when you're, you know, you're driving around, you get paid to drive around, and talk about literature, especially if it's a slow day and you're sitting out by the lake or something. Sounds pretty nice. Yeah, it's nice. Until you get a shooting or something, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah, I've I've you know I've met so many cops who are, are fascinating. You know, some of the most fascinating people I've met. At home the following morning, I will sit in my boxers and extra-large white T-shirt, staring at the wall and tracing the origins of this sol solitude through fragments. I will begin by opening the bottom drawer where I have kept notes that began when I was a doorman, my first job in the city. The memory of opening a door onto a busy street will return, along with autumn colors, taxis shooting past me, long conversations with workers in the neighborhood, salesmen, housekeepers, businessmen, cops. I'll ask myself again what point these fragments, what value. I will respond that they are an accurate account of a life in the service industry, an economy that transformed the city in my own formative years. For that alone, I think they hold value. But this conclusion, however accurate, will not satisfy. The fragments I crave, the ones I would string together, move from observations, the straightforward facts of Chicago, to insights more illuminating, revelatory even. The fragments I protect, though rooted in the city and accurate, go beyond the misery and mundane facts from which they arise by providing greater meaning, more possibilities, more complexing, more complexity, a thrilling prospect. Their value, I will ask again, none, I must confess, unless the form comes. some in the book, how you stop to scribble notes while you're working. Are there times during your working life that the writer disappears and you're only a police officer? Do you switch gears like that? Yes, you have to because when it's dangerous you have to be completely focused. But um, Yeah, you have to switch gears. But, you know, I always have a notebook in my, in my pocket or a piece of paper and I'm always scribbling something. And when I'm deep into something, and I've only written these this one collection of stories, so, but when I was deep into it, I was writing all the time, you know, even on the job. But you know, when it's dangerous, you have to totally focus. So I wouldn't be thinking about the book, but 
a lot of times you hear people talking on a domestic and it would remind me of something and that would get me going you know well speaking of balancing your work as a full-time police officer with being a writer do you have any advice for other writers with the day job how do you manage to be so productive while also working so much um advice to writers uh you know i'm not a real big believer in advice because uh you don't know who you're talking to, but you know what worked for me is, uh, is I would uh, I would say to writers, you know, for a long time I tried to do that, send stuff to our, you know magazines or whatever, and spend a you know live working lousy jobs, and this is no not a good way to live. I would encourage people to find a job that allows them to write and to live decently and to enjoy life and to take care of their bodies, you know, so get good exercise, eat well, have a nice place to live. Uh, starving and all that stuff, I wouldn't encourage it. The other side of that is a job, you know, a job gives you insight into things. I'm not a big believer in a lot of these, you know, the, the guy sitting alone all day exploring his subconscious and writing about it. That That's good for some writers, but it never really interested me. So uh, I think writing, I don't know if writing helps, you know, Sometimes I think, gosh, I wish I were just a full-time writer because it's kind of exhausting. And then other times I think, uh, this is a perfect balance. So I could, we'll go back and forth on it, you know. But I would say, take care of yourself. It, try and enjoy life, and uh, don't get caught up in that artist's, you know, lifestyle. There's too many dead ends and too many, you know, a lot of them end up as drunks and you know, broke. And I can't tell you how many kids I knew from the twenty in their twenties when we used to talk literature all the time and went down that road and now they're just kind of uh not a lot of them but you know living you know rough and you know you, you have no control whether you're gonna have any success or that big breakthrough or anything so keep it in a perspective where you can still enjoy life that that's well, that's how it worked i think now but i don't know it's if you're if you gotta write you're gonna write even if it means po poverty so uh, you know, you just got to keep struggling and find a way, you know what I mean? And you got to remember, too, that it's, you're very lucky just to be able to write, you know? You live in a society where you're free to write, you know, where there's enough standard of living that you can get by and write, and whether or not you have success in it or not, sometimes I feel just the act of writing itself is a, in and of itself a reward. Now, it's easy for me to say now, but uh, I came to that conclusion when I was still going nowhere, you know? I think, I don't know, I'm hesitant to give advice, you know, what do I know about anything, you know what I mean, so. It is late in the afternoon now in the winter, the light already fading. I turn on the news, head for the shower, sensing the approach of dread, anxiety, and eagerness that arrives each day in preparation for police work. I shut the bathroom door. The steam fills the room, making it warmer. I dislike the partner I'll be, I will be riding with tonight. The squad car will be filled with our silence. We no longer try to speak to each other apart from polite, necessary statements. He will be driving, euphoric at the control it gives him, darting the car in unexpected directions, pulling over cars to lecture a motorist about proper stickers and left turns, as I stand on the passenger side dutifully, aching for it to end. He is afraid of stopping the gangbangers. They get, they get the upper hand with him because he never learned the art of talking to them. 
When things get out of control, I will have to step in. I put on fresh clothes, my blue pants first, then a warm winter sweatshirt over the t-shirt, and begin the daily search for wallet, keys, and phone. I sneak my gun into my right front pocket. As I walk toward my car in the cold, I catch a glance of Lake Michigan on the left, see the light fading behind the buildings on Sheridan Avenue, to my right. Taking the police job signified my surrender to my distractions. I give every morning over to them, let them hold me. They resurface again in the late afternoons, not only mine, but those of the people we encounter as I move through the district in a squad car. I catch glimpses of the city's deepest distractions. As I drive to the 24th district for the afternoon shift, I pass the places where my family begin. The past, clearly my biggest distraction. I exit my car in the district parking lot, walk across it, and nod to co-workers half wearing their uniforms, gathering together with me. I walk past the front desk, nodding to colleagues, to colleagues, eyeing the stacks of papers for arrests, knowing they are, as much as anything, a testament to the city's illiteracy, a hopeless recounting of partial truths that will never move beyond acrimony into meaning. I am learning my way around these partial truths, admitting my failure to make sense of them. I notice lately a slight change. I notice when I recount these partial truths, or anything really, within the city, through the prism of my most heartfelt distractions, some people respond. These people can exist anywhere in the city, so long as they too feel the pull of the city's distractions, or, at least, sympathy with them. Cops, criminals, waiters, doormen, professional friends, certainly people whose lives in the cities took unexpected turns here. I can hold their attention in squad cars, bar rooms, and coffee shops, so long as I arrange the sentences carefully and let them find their own form. I admit a change in my mind, a belief now that these distractions, once something I cursed, are now the key to the liter are now the key to this literacy, one in which the city and all things in it becomes a compelling mystery I do not wish to exhaust, one I couldn't even if I tried. I look at myself in the locker room in uniform before roll call. Two old timers are bitching about a sergeant. I have this sense that this mystery will take my sentences beyond the endless acrimony of the city into a common sentiment. I feel not only is it possible, it is my duty. Martin Pribe's book, The Wagon and Other Stories of the City, is published by the University of Chicago Press and is available in fine bookstores everywhere. For more about this book, and our other books, please visit our website at www.press.uchicago.edu. This has been an episode of Chicago AudioWorks, the podcast of the University of Chicago Press. Additional episodes of Chicago AudioWorks are available from iTunes and other podcast aggregators. Your comments and questions about this podcast are always welcome. The podcast email address is publicity at press.uchicago.edu. Thanks for listening.